Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. So the public persona that you've developed and evolved, how does that feel to you, being kind of the ambassador for your craft? I would say it's something that does not come naturally. (laughs) I'd much rather be in the back in the winery, like, Uh (laughs) you know, putting a blend together or walking a vineyard. Yes. But you do so well. You gave me a fantastic tour and a lot of insight. It was absolutely fascinating. You obviously have a a tremendous breadth and depth to your perception. Um, And um, really, in terms of... um, the winemaking skills, clearly, you have a formidable set of those, but you have such a relationship with the craft that comes through when you speak about it um, that it's, you know, it's undeniable. So for what it's worth, um, you give really good storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we have some wine in front of us, and maybe we can taste one of those as we continue our conversation, because quite frankly, I can't take it anymore. I'm so excited yeah. to taste it. Um, where should we start? Um, why don't we start with the the Vaso? The Vaso. Sort of, so Vaso is um, sort of the newest newest wine to join mm-hmm. the Don Estates family of wines. Um, in a way, it's new and old at the same time. Um, we've been sort of working on this wine for years and uh, has been sold into Korea um, since 2008. Uh, was the first year that it was in in the Korean market, and we just uh, released it um, about 18 months ago internationally. So that's U.S. market and other international markets that were we sell wine in. Um, so what's exciting about this, to me, what's really exciting about the wine is that it uh, sort of captures all of our different vineyards that we're farming, mm-hmm. um, and sort of captures the overall philosophy of what Donna Estates is trying to do um, in a wine that's more accessible to a larger audience. So we were talking about, um, you know, Dana, which is a Sanskrit word, um, coming back to this, which is a, it's a Sanskrit word that means spirit of generosity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's the the nickname given to our founder, Mr. Lee, um, by a Buddhist monk. And Mr. Lee really embodies that philosophy of generosity. And with the, the single vineyard wines from Don Estates, we're just not able to produce that much, mm-hmm. which feels very ungenerous ah. um, in a certain way. And that's something that's definitely, definitely been, we talk about um, at the winery. And so Vaso is a way for us to be able to share sort of our passion and our philosophy of you know, growing grapes and making wine with a larger audience than we can with our single vineyard wines. Makes a lot of sense. Um, um, it smells fantastic. So this is the 2015 vintage um, that we're trying today. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the backbone of the wine comes um, from our Hershey vineyard. Mm-hmm. And, but it is a blend of all four vineyards. So our Hershey vineyard, our Crystal Springs vineyard, our Lotus vineyard, and our Helms vineyard. And all, all four of those vineyards are estate, mm-hmm. and we're farming them all organically and have been um, since around 2009. It's like kind of a three-year lead time to get it certified. Yes. Um, but ever since, it was sort of one of the first things we did from a farming perspective was to convert over to organic farming. 
for wow. all of our vineyards. Wow, that's fantastic to hear that. Look at the legs on this. I know you guys that are listening can't see it, but it has quite a bit of presence just even looking at it in the glass. So 15, you said, was um, an interesting vintage. A lot of people in the valley experienced some shorter crops. Uh, for you, it was more of an early vintage, right? Yeah, I'd say the, the crop was smaller, um, a little better than 2011, which is another really short, short vintage in terms of volume. Um, but yeah, it was an early vintage in terms of we had very early bud break. And so the season really got off to an early start. Um, so in terms of the total growing season time, it wasn't really dramatically shorter mm-hmm. um, than something like 2016. It's just that everything was shifted um, earlier in the year. Got it. Wow. Um, so I think the wines, the, the wines from 2015 really still retain a lot of freshness and brightness. Indeed. Um, but because of that kind of warmer finish to the season, they're still capturing that kind of warmer Napa Valley um, fruit profile, uh, you know, that I think is something that's, that I think people find very appealing about Napa is that, um, like that the ability, qualities. yeah, that it's, it's kind of a, almost sort of a, a richness to the, the fruit, the fruit. Um, one of the things that we're trying to do with, with all of our wines is really trying to find that balance, mm-hmm. um, where there's a really, there's a balance between the acidity um, and the fruit and the tannin mm-hmm. and trying to find exactly where within that triangle for each of the different wines, we can really keep the wines being fresh and bright um, while still having the structure and the, the fruit that people are expecting from a Cabernet from Napa Valley. It's quite a silky mouthfeel. The texture is brilliant. It is very fresh. It's exceptionally pleasurable. I love. Um, so we left you in 2014, I believe, um, when you were working uh, with multitude of different resources and had quite a panoply of vineyards that you were um, drawing experience and expertise from and working with. Um, is that when you met Mr. Lee or? So um, how I ended up at Donna from sort of end of 2014 was that um, I would, I'd sort of, I'd been at Provenance and Hewitt for quite a while at that right, point and was looking to, you know, sort of transition to something smaller. Um, wasn't sure whether it was smaller and family owned or, mm-hmm. you know, something where I could have a more direct connection to the vineyard. Sure. Um, because something as that became clear throughout the years working um, at Provenance was that the, the parent company, Diageo, as they sort of dug deeper and deeper into the wine industry, it became apparent to me that they didn't really understand it. And at some point they were going <laughs> to offload, you know, even though they, you know, uh, Larry Schwartz, the guy that was running it for the U.S. operations at the time, and even Ivan Menendez, who is the CEO of them globally, like, it's just like they would say one thing and you could just see other things happening in the mechanics of the way they ran the business. And you're like, you guys just don't understand that you're going to have to get rid of this at some point. So to me, that was a clear sign that like, who knows who the next person is just going to own it, but I need to do something different. And plus it was a time in my life where I was really just ready to take on a new challenge mm-hmm. um, and work with some different vineyards and do something different. Um, 
someone that I'd gone to Davis with um, had been working at Donna Estates and he was basically leaving to pursue his sort of first passion, which was sailing. Um, and it was, they had, he and his wife had bought a boat and were gonna sail around the world with their two girls. And so he was gonna be leaving a position at Donna and he contacted me and said, I know you're looking for something new, you know, would this mm -hmm. be something you might be interested in? Do you wanna come meet with, um, with Mr. Lee mm -hmm. and talk about the opportunity? So, uh, that, so it was at the end of 2014 that I um, met with Mr. Lee and sort of like, you know, we sort of hit it off and thought it would be a good fit from, from both sides, that yeah. this would be something that um, would, be, would be something for me, something fun to do and a new challenge. Um, and that I had this, obviously had a skill set that he thought would be something that would allow him to, you know, continue making wines in the, in the style that he, style and to pursue his philosophical goals of how he wants the wines to be. So it was a good, it was a good meeting, let's just put it that way. So, so far the hallmarks, what you're describing with respect to your life path is a lot of hard work, you know, a lot of intensely hard work from what I'm hearing, and serendipity. Well, isn't that the way life always is? <laughs> yes, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that fateful meeting obviously resulted in you taking a job here. What did it look like when you first started? Um, so the the initial first month, because I had a one month overlap with my predecessor. So there was mm -hmm. a huge amount of just learning and having him offloading information mm -hmm. um, about what he had accumulated over the previous, you know, 10 years that he had been here. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a real giant data dump and me taking a lot of notes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but also really a realization like, wow, this is going to be really fun. Like there's just, there's so much that we still don't know. There's so much still to work on. There's so many things, you know, not only to learn and wrap my head around, but like just great vineyards that I'm going to get to work with. You know, it's kind of almost this like, almost feel a little bit like blessed from the, like, yeah. wow, I'm, I'm going to be put in charge of these raw materials and I'm going to get to make wine out of this. This is cool. Like, it's just wow. a really kind of fun, it was just very fun and exciting to to be able to step into something where you have the ability to not only take it from the you know to the raw material all the way through the winemaking process into the bottle um, but really have the ability to really make um, to shape that at every step of the process. Have you tasted Donna wines before? Yes, I had, um, through my friend Cameron. Yeah, sure, yeah. I would assume so. So did you like them, what did you think? Um, I would say that like, yeah, I definitely liked them, right. but they were, they were harder for me to wrap my head around the first couple of times that I had them mm -hmm. because they're, they were very different from what I would sort of describe as a typical Napa Valley wine. Okay. Um, and I think in some, some cases, sometimes that's a little bit of a, a shock sometimes to people when they, they taste our wines. It's that they're maybe a little bit unexpected. Okay. Um, in terms of trying to, you know, because philosophically trying to make wines that have that balance of acidity mm -hmm. in addition to structure 
and fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd say really it's the acidity piece of it that I think is sort of people aren't expecting that. Okay. That acidity, acidity to be combined with sort of that the creamy texture yeah. that has that underlying structure. Sure. So. Um, it kind of give you a preview. It sounds like of what the capabilities are and what the inherent characteristics may be. You know? Yeah. And maybe wines that you tasted had more of an old world feel to them. Is that a? I would say a little bit. Um, but like with anything, like I think one of the, the things that I really, you know, liked about Mr. Lee and his, his sort of vision was that, you know, Donna Estates to him wasn't something that he was looking to have be, um, to build and have it hit its peak at five years. Um, it was really a long-term vision and almost more of a generational vision, mm-hmm. you know, an attempt to build something that was going to be around for generations Mm -hmm. and so a real understanding that it was going to take time to understand the vineyards you know if you think about some of the great wines of the world people have been working those vineyards for hundreds of years and they just have a deep understanding that is very difficult to accumulate in five years because just to see one cycle from you know, let's say the beginning of the season where you prune the vines to when you bottle the wine is three years. And that's a freshly bottled wine that you still need another year to really kind of wrap your head around and see how all those decisions you made in those previous three years are going to start to start to play out, let alone really play out in, you know, the aging of the wine in five to 10 years. Absolutely. So like it's, it's, it's a constant you know, learning and iterating on what you've learned. And a lot of times those learnings, you don't see things in the wine that you can relate back to something that happened in the vintage or in terms of how you did something in the vineyard or in the winery. Sometimes it takes a long time to actually not only see it happen in the wine, but also to tease that out and, and figure those things out. Some things are much quicker and you can see them more rapidly. But I think some of the nuances and some of the, the finer points sometimes take a, a long time to work out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm sure I'm not going to have perfected what the vineyards I'm working with can achieve in my career. But that's part of what makes it fun is that you can always do something different and hopefully do it better than you did it before. Sounds like an art of patience and clearly down in states practice an intensely thoughtful, insightful, very deliberate approach to every aspect from the ground to the cellar um, and everything is very meticulously thought through. Obviously you don't know what the final result will be that reveals itself but um, the initial mindset that permeates your brand is extreme attention to detail um, and studying everything and examining everything, right? And that feeds into your analytical side quite well, I would imagine. I, I, you know, I, I naturally gravitate towards that aspect of things. <laughs> yes, yes. But then you also talked about letting go and the hands-off. So how do, how do you balance the two? I would say that, you know, like, like we talked about before, like I, I do love data, but at a certain time, you're... The, 
it's understanding what what's the end goal of yeah. of what you're trying to do, and that's it's the same thing in the vineyard. You can collect a huge amount of information, and that information. The important thing is what do you do with it, and yes. how do you use it to try to achieve your goal? Like collecting information for the sake of collecting information. As I sort of learned in the research environment, is like at a certain point, you're just kind of spinning your wheels, and it gets. It can just you sort of can get bogged down by too right. much, but sometimes you have to collect that data for a long time to be able to analyze it to realize that it's the wrong data to be collecting, mm -hmm. and it points you in a new direction. Mm -hmm. um, and so, being able to try to figure out what is the relevant data that's going to allow you to change the way that the wine tastes, and that you can make a wine that's more representative representative of place through maybe taking more action, but maybe taking less action. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I would say like, I collect a lot of data that then informs me that I shouldn't do anything, but I'm making an informed choice not to do something. And how you develop that filter? Is it just experience? Understanding what needs to happen versus what I think it's experience. It's experience, but it's also running lots of like mini experiments. Yeah. So like mm -hmm. they're not scientific experiments in terms of like you know, it's a double-blinded control, and you be able to control every variable, and run something that you know is publishable in a journal, but it's something that's relevant for you know your wine or your vineyard and mm -hmm. being able to learn something from that in a way that helps move you in a, in a direction. And I'd say I probably go a little bit overkill on really wanting controls and, you know, okay, we got to do it the, the old way here and here's two new ways and then we got to make the wine out of it. We can't just observe it in the vineyard. It's got to translate into the wine. So I, I'd say I do complicate my life um, and the life of the, not only the vineyard, vineyard team, but also the seller team and um, in ways that um, probably they find a little bit frustrating, but really trying to then take those experiments and take them back to them and show them like, here, we did all this, you did all this extra work so that we could try to tease out some difference. Um, here's, here's the result. And like, yeah, we have an answer or, you know, look, it's, it's the way science is sometimes and doing experiments, sometimes you don't get a result. So we should repeat it next year or we should not repeat it next year, you know, but bringing it back so that everyone is on board and everyone can learn from the experience, um, I think is valuable because oftentimes someone else comes up with a better idea of like, oh, we well, tried this. Yeah. Have you thought, what if we did that? It's like, oh, I hadn't thought of doing that. Like, you know, so it's, it's what I also find really fun about making wine is that it's, it's also a team, team exercise and yeah, that, you know, that you, you kind of are, you, you're learning from a really diverse group of people. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it takes you in directions that you weren't really thinking. So, I love that kind of open-mindedness and also I value critical thinking a great deal and what you described certainly feeds into that, that you push yourself, you push your team, you don't just take thumbs against face value and say that's how it's been done. You know, what I read or experienced at other uh, brands, this is not good enough. I'm going to find out. I'm going to get to the bottom of it. And things reveal themselves along the way that you may not expect. Fantastic. Has there been an instance or a vintage that just really threw you for a loop where things just didn't make sense? I'm thinking maybe 2011 or maybe some other set of circumstances that just really gave you a hard time. Um, 
I'd say <clears throat> maybe it's just because it's in more recent memory, but mm -hmm. I'd say 2017 was one of those vintages where there was, it was just very, it sort of changed the way that I think about growing grapes in warm climates. Huh. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know, the, the start to the growing season, you know, we had a lot of rain, there was a lot of soil moisture starting the growing season. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of challenges with that in terms of like having a lot of shoot growth. Um, and so having canopies and, you know, you never know exactly where your season is going. So how exactly are you going to manage sort of the horsepower of the vine mm -hmm. and you're trying to forecast what's going to happen later and thinking that the season was really going to go in a certain direction and that it was, oh, okay, well we have, you know, sort of the vines have a little more, more leaf area. How are we going to manage that? Mm -hmm. Is that going to be an accelerated ripening, whether it's, you know, warmer or cool and how are we going to manage that to make sure that we have physiological ripeness so we have all the flavors and textures and that are going to be inherent in those grapes that are going to translate to the wine and then having the beginning of september having that just crushing heat wave that wasn't one day or two days yes you know it was you know 110 plus for six days um was really unexpected and to see what the vines did in that scenario where they really almost behaved like it was too cold in that they shut down, they stopped ripening and they kind of went into hibernation the same in a similar way to when it's really cold out. Okay. And if you have a really cold vintage like 2011, mm -hmm. oh man, the ripening is really slow. Like are these grapes ever going to ripen? Uh, sugar accumulation in the grapes literally came to a complete screeching halt. Oh and I've never seen anything like that. And you're thinking it's hot, but you're seeing this other kind of pattern behavior. in the of yeah. behavior in the grapes. And you're like, they've shut down. They're not ripening. The tannins aren't ripening. You know, aroma and flavor molecules aren't accumulating because there's no sugar going into the berry. Yeah. So none of that transport mechanism is happening. And how are we now going to react to that? And how is that going to inform when we pick our grapes? Of course. Um, I'd say that really was a real curveball and picked a couple of lots on the earlier side mm -hmm. and you know ended up really not liking those lots and declassifying those mm. um, but sort of you know having that patience to wait and really trying to ignore certain you know like it's hot things should be accelerating we should be seeing we should be picking faster sure. or sooner I'd say that was a really difficult sort of, you know, puzzle to kind of figure out that that was not the right decision for, for our vineyards and to really just hold on and wait. Um, I'd say it was just, it was something completely new and kind of a real curveball and sort of changed the way that I think about, you know, in a fundamental way, think about how I think about heat and, you know, climate change and growing grapes yeah. and, in a warm climate, because there's a lot of talk about it. I was like, is Cabernet going to be a varietal we're going to be able to grow in Napa mm -hmm, in 50 years? Yeah. No, it sounds like a lot of sensitivity to the vine as a living organism in every aspect, but also sensibility. Like it had to have been a really difficult moment because in the wine business, you have one shot a year 
And yeah, then, you can't you can't you unpick can't, the grapes. Exactly. <laughs> oh no, put them back. <laughs> so how nerve wracking it must have been when you're watching those numbers and and tasting and realizing I don't know how to wrap my head around it. Wow. And how did it turn out in the end? Are you pleased? I'm very happy with the wines. Um, they took a while to kind of come around. So mm -hmm. right after harvest, they were a little bit more challenging to kind of figure out where they were going and. Um, but now that we have all this 17s in bottle, it's just I'm I'm very happy with where where they came out. Um, you must feel very gratifying. I mean, it's it's <laughs> given the stress. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to have have them in bottle and and be really happy about what's what's there. Yes, um, it, and you know, again, it's like it's an educational. You know, I look at it as like, oh, I've learned something really. Mm -hmm. interesting from this really unique set of circumstances that Mother Nature threw at us. Absolutely. Um, um, there's a lot of complaining about 2011 because it was such a cool vintage and such an inconsistent growing season, but 2017 for the most part is regarded as a warm vintage, clearly with some heat spikes. But overall, there seems to be a lot of more negative value assigned to cooler um, and weather yes. events than to warmer. The conventional wisdom would say, now, but we have fantastic weather, you know, typically very even growing seasons. So it can be a problem. But here we are facing, you know, a monumental issue that could have turned into a disaster. So congratulations on managing yeah. it well. Well, I mean, if you compare it to 2011, again, like, I think there were some just absolutely beautiful wines made in 2011. Indeed. Um, and there's this sort of negativity associated with the vintage, but like, I mean, some of the some of my favorite Cabernets from Napa Valley come from the 2011 vintage, and it's because that you know they, you know, in the instances where people were really thoughtful about the decisions that they made, the wines have just a poise and a precision that I think in some vintages that are more kind of classic Napa Valley vintages, the wines don't have, um, and to me, that's something that I enjoy. And as we talked about it earlier, it's like every wine has to go into an individual's mouth and yes. be consumed. And so it's a very personal individualistic thing about like yeah. what wine is right for different people. And so like from my perspective, I quite enjoy the 2011s and really think it's a, you know, for people that, that made some good, good decisions in the vineyard and were very thoughtful, the wines are brilliant. I absolutely agree. It reminds me of 1998 that, suffered a similar fate in terms of perception, but the longevity and the elegance and to borrow it from you, precision is remarkable. So I quite enjoyed my 98s uh, while people were chasing 97 still and then realizing that perhaps 98 is quite worthwhile. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, 97 is this great vintage. And it's like, uh, didn't quite age the way that people were thinking it was going to. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.